So I've got something I need y'all to do this morning. Y'all are going to help me with an illustration. I want you to picture a pilgrim in your mind, right? You got it? You got a pilgrim in your mind? What's your pilgrim look like? Buckles on the shoes. Buckle on the hat. Apron on the women. I don't know what's up with all the buckles. There's a buckle on the belt too, so pilgrims and the buckles. Yeah, but we got buckles on the shoes. White collar, musket with a big, the big bell coming off of it. I picture the Looney Tunes, you know, big red bulbous nose, um, you know, pasty skin. That's the that's the version of the pilgrim. I uh, when I when I think pilgrim, that's what I think too. It's um, I, I, we we usually think Thanksgiving, the Mayflower, the Puritans. They fled persecution, find a place where they could worship freely. Came over and shot some turkeys, you know, that, that, that whole, whole thing. We kind of have the cartoon version of pilgrims in our mind. But, you know, the reality is uh, a pilgrim is way more than just the people with all the buckles on their clothes. A pilgrim specifically is someone on a journey, a specific journey for a specific purpose, a sacred purpose. Headed to a sacred place for a holy reason. Right? And that's not what we think of when we think of pilgrims. But that's what a pilgrim is. You know, pilgrimage, right? You, you think about it, somebody's going on a pilgrimage. To, uh, right now, if you, do, if you type in Israel pilgrimage, you know what's not going to pop up? A bunch of stuff in the Bible. A huge list of about 25 different tour companies that are going to take you on a pilgrimage through the Holy Land. Right? Does that make, begin to make sense to you a little bit? And in Psalm 23, it's impossible to not see this pilgrim language here because the entire poem is leading up to this person, King David, on a pilgrimage, a journey into the presence of God. And as we wrap up Psalm 23, I want us to look at the journey of a pilgrim from this chapter, from this book, this poem. We're going to read Psalm 23 together today from the Young's literal translation of the Bible. This translation is exactly that. It is a literal translation, which means they didn't change any verb tenses. They didn't change the order of the words to make them make sense in English right? It can be difficult and unnatural to read at times, but if you don't know anything about original languages and you want to read something literal that will kind of give you a little insight, the Young's Literal Translation is a good translation to use. And thankfully, the literal translation of Psalm 23 is not that hard to read. Now, there are some verses that are, you know, you'll think Shakespeare's hard. Try to read the Young's Literal Translation. So, Throw that up on the screen and let's read this together from the Young's Little Translation. A Psalm of David, Jehovah is my shepherd, I do not lack. In pastures of tender grass he causeth me to lie down, by quiet waters he doth lead me. My soul he refresheth, he leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Also, when I walk in a valley of death shade, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou arrangest before me a table 
over against my adversaries. Thou hast anointed with, with oil my head. See, my cup is full. Only goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life, and my dwelling is in the house of Jehovah for the length of my days. Now, all the thys and thous and ethis in these, this was the translations from like the 1850s. So those are, those are not, these and thous are not literal translations, but you get it. It's a good translation to look at. But we're going to wrap up today looking at verse 6, which we'll, we'll be done with a literal translation. We'll go back to the one we know. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right? That's the one we know. But before we look at this text, I want to set it up. I, I, I want us to get a little historical understanding of the situation that Israel and King David was in at the time of writing Psalm 23, because I really want us to understand this pilgrim language that's happening here in Psalm 23. If a pilgrim is someone, this is our definition, this is our working definition, someone who is on a journey to a sacred place with a holy purpose. And if that's our definition, then Israel and the story of Israel and the people of Israel are the ultimate pilgrims. Their story begins with Abraham in Genesis 11. Now Abraham, when we get to Genesis 11, Abraham is not a believer. He's not a follower of Yahweh. He doesn't even know who Yahweh is. Genesis tells us that he was polytheistic. He worshipped many gods, him and his fathers. Worshipped all, they worshipped all the gods, whatever they were. And so when God, Yahweh, the true God, tells Abraham, hey, Abraham, leave the land you're in, the land you know, and go to a special land, a prepared place, a place I'll show you. And then God gives him the promise that he'll make his name great and that, he'll ha that, his, that his descendants will outnumber the sands of the sea. And so we see Abraham head off on a pilgrimage to a land called Canaan, the sacred place for a holy purpose, and Abraham will be called later the father of Israel. Now jump forward a couple of generations, and Abraham's great-great-great-grandchild great-grandchild, great-great-grandchild, great-grandchild Joseph is sold into slavery by his own brothers, if you're familiar with that story, and eventually through a series of events, ends up in Egypt and he helps save the Egyptians from a drought because he, he, he has a dream that there's going to be a, a seven years of feast and seven years of drought. Somehow he convinces the leader of Egypt, hey, we need to store up during the seven years of feast and there is seven years of drought and he ends up saving Egypt. But through another series of events, strange events, he moves his family, the same family that sold him into slavery. Years later, he moves them into Egypt to protect them during the drought, during the famine. And it's, it's where we get the famous verse, uh, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. That's, where that, that's part of that story. And then if we, if we move forward a little bit more, we, we have, now here's what's happened. None of the descendants of Abraham are, are in Canaan any longer. Now they're all in Egypt. If you ever wonder how the Egyptians got to Egypt, this is how it happened. And now move ahead a few more generations, two more generations. Now there's millions of, of Israelites, Jew, Jewish people in Egypt, and things are going fine 
until the Pharaoh that knew Joseph dies and another Pharaoh replaces him who doesn't know Joseph. He's threatened by the sheer amount of people now, these Jewish people who are now living right here on the edge of Egypt. So he declares them slaves. He enslaves two generations of Joseph's descendants. Now we're here we are four or five generations away from Abraham. Makes them start building roads and buildings, and, and now they're slaves in Egypt. And this is where Moses comes on the scene. Moses is going to be the one that leads the people of Israel out of Egypt on a pilgrimage back to Canaan. Now, and we're five generations, a, 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 few, a, a few hundred years removed from Abraham's original pilgrimage to Canaan. And so they spend 40 years because of sin. It, wasn't, it wasn't, didn't take 40 years. It took them 40 years to get there, but it shouldn't have. It should have taken them about a year. But they messed up a lot, all right? And so it took them a long time to get there. But the reality is, is, is why Canaan? Now, it, it, was it a nice piece of property? I, I, I'm sure it was. But what makes it special it's not just that it's a nice piece of property or that the grapes were as big as watermelons or whatever that part of that story is. We had to carry them in on some logs. I don't even know if those grapes would be good, but that's, that's nothing to it. What makes it special is that God has promised that he would not only establish Israel as a great nation, but what he was going to establish there in Canaan was a place for them to worship Yahweh, the one true God. That in this place, they could build a permanent temple and no longer have to worship God in a tent, which they were carrying with them through the desert. This would be a special place of worship, a special place in the presence of God. And this is what the people of Israel longed for. They longed to, to, to no longer be slaves. That song was not on the original agenda, but it worked out. All right? They, they longed to have freedom to worship and to see Yahweh exalted as the one true God. Now, jump ahead a few more generations, two, three more generations, and here's what we have. We have made it to the promised land. Israel is a great nation, but they're still not a permanent temple. God is still worshipped in a tent called the tabernacle. And there were two tabernacles. I don't know if you're aware of that. You have the tabernacle of Moses and the tabernacle of David. One in Judah and one in Jerusalem. So things are now, they're not just that they don't have a permanent place. Now they're divided. And King David, using the language of pilgrims, and this group of people, these Israelites, who felt like they have been perpetual pilgrims, always seeking this permanent presence of God, he closes the psalm, this poem, with an ultimate hope for the present and the future when he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I hate to mess up text for people. Well, no, 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 I don't. But I hate to mess this one up because there's a lot of emotion tied to Psalm 23. But I, I want us to understand that when David is talking about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, and this, this is so important in this text, he is not talking about heaven. He's not. In fact, 
David isn't even referencing eternity here. He's literally talking about the here and now. This present life on earth. You saw it in that Young's literal translation. In fact, can you pull that verse 6 back up in the Young's literal translation for me? Um, I know that wasn't the plan. Look at this. Only goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life, and my dwelling is in the house of Jehovah for the length of my days. And that is for the length of my days on earth. Right? You can, you can take it off or they'll stare at the screen the whole time. That's what we do with screens. I found myself the other night with like my laptop open and the TV on and my phone in my hand. I'm like, what am I doing? Um, and so so the, the reality is the house of the Lord, all right, it is the temple. All right, it's a reference to the temple, the permanent temple that David wanted to build but never got to build. But nobody actually lived in the temple. David, so David's not talking about living inside the temple. So he, even, he isn't even really referencing a building. For Israel, the temple represented the presence of God where God made himself known to the people of Israel. And, and so it's here that God comes down in a special way, a unique way to be with his people. And it's here that they can approach him and they know where to find him. And Psalm 24 describes the temple as a place where God's people and a sovereign God, they converge together in worship. And so to be present, is in, the, to be present in the temple means that you are before God, to have access to him, to lament and praise and thanksgiving. This, this issue of being ever dwelling in the temple means to remain always in God's care in God's presence. So there's this, to escape this sense of distance and absence that seemed to exist since Joseph was kidnapped and sent to Egypt. And it's carried over for generation and generation and generation. And they always feel like they've never really arrived at home. And so they, 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 they're surrounded by enemies as long as they can remember, they've been surrounded by enemies. Hostile. And David sees himself on a journey. When he writes Psalm 23, he's surrounded by enemies. But he also sees himself surrounded by the presence of God. As an honored guest of the greatest of all kings, God himself. And God is his shepherd. And God is the king that invites him to sit at the table in front of the enemies, which we talked about last week. And it's, it's, if, if God is watching over him, then what's better? And they, they weren't longing for a building. They, they weren't longing even for protection or even provision. Their longing was to be in God's presence. Because God provides more than just escape from vengeance and death. He provides an experience of abundance and delight. In fact, Psalm 36, 8 says, People... Feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from your river of delights. So Yahweh here is viewed as a, as a prosperous host who, who exercises generous hospitality to his guests and we're honored to have been chosen to, to live with God, to be satisfied with the goodness of God and in Yahweh's house. So I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so dwelling in the house of the Lord isn't about escape. 
It's an experience of blessing and honor as well as protection. So David's not talking about a building. He's talking about the source of life and the source of light. And so to come into the dwelling of God is to approach the very essence of life and light where Yahweh dwells in his glory and it penetrates and illuminates everything. Brent read it this morning from Hebrews 9, how the, the, the priests would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And this guidance, this sense of guidance, uh, it allows the guest of the king to prosper. Uh, uh, Psalm 92 describes it as flourishing trees planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of God, and they will still bear fruit in old age and stay fresh and green. And so you see the hope expressed in Psalm 23, dwell in the house of the Lord forever, is grounded in belief that Yahweh is the source of life, the source of light, and to dwell with him is to have eternal access to those resources. But what about us, right? We're not Israelites. There might be somebody in here who can trace, you know, with 23andMe and Ancestry.com, you might be able to trace that back. We might find the lost tribes at this point. I don't have any idea. What about us? Now, if a pilgrim is someone on a journey to a sacred place for a holy purpose, doesn't that kind of make us all pilgrims? For Christians, right, those who follow Christ, know Christ, believe Jesus is the great king, those who've experienced being changed by God's spirit and now adopted into God's family. The Bible actually uses the term pilgrim for us a lot. Pilgrim, stranger, sojourners, that language. And I, and I want us to look at some parallels and some differences between King David's time and now. Because as much as David longed to be in the presence of God all the days of his life, David was part of what's called the Old Covenant, right? If you're not familiar with the Old Covenant, we could literally call the Bible, instead of the Old Testament and New Testament, we should probably call it the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It would, it would make more sense. I don't know how the Testament word came into play, but I know all my professors wish that it was called Old Covenant and New Covenant. The Old Covenant really existed for one purpose. And if you read along with, with uh, Brent this morning in Hebrews 9, you, you would see this. Here was the purpose. The Old Covenant really technically existed to reveal that it's impossible for someone to fulfill the law. The Old Covenant was about the law, right? There's these list of rules. Don't break the rules. Well, guess what? Israel's history is a history of breaking the rules, repenting, coming back, than breaking the rules again. But also in the Old Covenant, there's, there's, there was only one way to enter into the presence of God, and that was in the temple, the physical temple, the tabernacle. It was the place where God said he would dwell with his people. Uh, it was called the Holy of Holies, or the, the most holy place. And it was behind a great curtain. The, the curtain was actually so thick, to open it once a year for the high priest to go in, they actually had to tie oxen to the to the curtain to pull it, because they say it was the width of a man's hand. So I got a fat palm, so if I close my thumb, we're going to go three or four inches thick. Now, I don't know how you weave a curtain that thick, but hey, they did it. They had to pull it with oxen to open it. And so the high priest would go into the Holy Holies once a year, sprinkle blood on the altar for the unintentional sins 
of the Jewish people, the ones they didn't even realize they committed, they did, the rules they didn't even realize they had broken. However, for us, as new covenant pilgrims, we're part of what Hebrews calls a better covenant. Now, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth as a human, and that's what was just celebrated at Christmas the last couple of weeks ago. And he once and for all abolished the old covenant with the sacrifice of dying on the cross. And so now the Holy Spirit of God doesn't dwell in a tent behind a thick curtain. In fact, it talks about when Christ died on the cross, it is finished, that curtain was torn in two, right? Send a couple of angels down, they just rip that thing open, all right? And, and, and then at Pentecost, we know when they prayed, the Holy Spirit comes down, descends like a dove, and is spread out. And so the Spirit of God dwells in us now if we follow Christ and repent of our sins. But like David, we have a similar issue. Our issue is we still have the same desire that David wrote in Psalm 23 to dwell in the presence of God. Yet we can actually say we are in the presence of God. So what's the dilemma? right? How can I say that at salvation, at conversion, the Holy Spirit dwells in me, but somehow I still have this longing to be in the presence of God? Well, there's a, there's a theological term called the already not yet, right? Anybody familiar with that term? I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Some people take it too far. There's some charismatics who kind of abuse it and end up in prosperity gospel with it and some stuff like that, but I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. All right, I'm just talking about the fact that we haven't, we're not perfected. We're not glorified, right? That's the end. That's the last thing. We're not there yet. We're on our way, but we're not there. So, so for example, all right, think about this. Uh, Hebrews 2, 8 and 9 says, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, and him is Christ here, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death. And this is why believers are so often referred to as pilgrims and sojourners and strangers in Scripture, because we haven't arrived at our final destination. We're strangers in a strange land, right? There's an old song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And if I can remember the rest of it, I'd sing a little bit of it for you. All right, and and or, or and I can remember growing up under these these songs that would talk about home and 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 I'm not talking about heaven. I'm just talking about this this sense of it's just something not quite right yet. And Hebrews three talks about the goal of God's people entering into rest intended by Him since the creation of the world, and it's symbolized by Sabbath rest that's talked about in Genesis 2, and that rest was interrupted by Adam and Eve when they sinned, and it caused us to be restless, to feel like we never quite fit in here, like something is just not quite right. And the new covenant promise is that Jesus will fulfill the restlessness that's in us. Yet, if I were to ask you, and you were to be honest, do you still feel like, if you're a believer, you might be a little restless? Still feel like you don't quite belong? I feel that way. I'm going to read a little bit of Hebrews 9, even though you've already heard it. 
Listen to this passage now in light of what I've described. Verse 11 says, But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. This is a reference, direct reference to the Old Testament tabernacle. Tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the perfection, purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we can serve a living God? Now, there's an issue of rest that's tied to this passage. And the reality is, is this rest is not sleep, right? This isn't, I just wish I could sleep better at night. I don't know if you're like me, but that is a wish I have. I wish I slept better at night. It's, it's a reference to God resting on the seventh day after creating the world. Now, you think God was tired when he got done? You think that's why he rested? God was like, whew, man, that was a lot. I need a day. Just give me a day. Y'all leave me alone. Give me a day. I'll be back on Monday, right? But for the next 24 hours. I'm just going to hide out, leave me alone. No. When he says he rested, he meant he was done. He was finished. And he looked at what he had done in those six days and he said, this is good. And that good just doesn't mean all right. I mean, he meant, no, this is it. This is what I intended to do. This is good. This is the kind of rest that the author of Hebrews has in mind to enter into a complete state of life that was intended by God at the beginning, before Adam and Eve sinned. For anyone who enters, this is Hebrews 4, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Now, if David is talking about dwelling in God's house, in God's presence, during this life, we have to ask, is that possible? Can we dwell in the house of God today? Or is this just a future hope, sort of wishful thinking, or, or this, this looking forward? Or can we, can we take up residence here and now? Do we have to wait until the end, until the, all the evil is done in the world, defeated once and for all? Or is there a sense in which our residence in the dwelling place of God, in, in, in the face of and in the spite of very real and ongoing evidence that we're in an evil world, can we rest in his presence now? I think too often we look at Psalm 23 and we read through it and we get to the end and we think, I, I, I think of my grandmother. I, I'm going to get to heaven and I don't have to worry no more. But that's not what Psalm 23 is teaching. What, what, what it's teaching, now it's true that when we get to heaven, we're not going to have to worry anymore, right? And that's in the Bible. It's just not in Psalm 23. Psalm 23. 
Here's what David was teaching. He was not talking about the future. He was talking about right now. And if David felt like in the old covenant that he could be in the permanent presence of God the rest of his days, how much more can those of us who are in the new covenant where God's not dwelling in the temple find ourselves dwelling in the house of God, in this presence of God now, right now, not in the future, not waiting on heaven. Goodness and mercy pursue you now, while on this earth. And I'll dwell in the presence of Yahweh, my shepherd, all the days of my life. The promise here is peace and mercy and goodness in the presence of God, and it's not something we're waiting on. In fact, Gerald Wilson said it like this. He said, as long as we think of the house of God as a place, whether in time or outside of time, we're doomed to wait in vain for its appearance. As long as we're looking after an experience that takes us out of the pain and takes us out of the uncertainty of living, we will not know what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because this is not an escape plan. And those who teach that it is, it's heresy. And they're heretics. But as Psalm 23 shows us, dwelling in the house of God does not mean that we're somehow translated out of our current circumstance. Instead, it means I'm going to dwell in the very presence of my enemies. And this psalm is telling us that it's possible to experience the gracious presence of God and to receive abundant life he offers in the midst of this. And that is the already breaking over into the not yet. And I know, because I've done it and I've heard it, that a lot of times the gospel is presented as an escape plan. I've heard the try Jesus and see if you like him gospel my entire life. And that is not a good gospel. Salvation isn't about giving Jesus a shot. I'll give Jesus a chance and see how it works out. I believe hell is a real place. I, I, if I polled y'all anonymously, statistics say in this group, we'd be a little on the high side, but about 40% of y'all would have some reservations about that statement. That may or may not be true. I don't know. I've never polled NBC over that. It makes me sick to think of anyone going to hell. But I believe the Bible is God's word, and I believe the Bible has a lot to say about hell. In fact, it, it says more about hell than it does heaven. I believe anyone who follows Christ and repents of their sins will not face hell, but will go to heaven. But the message of the gospel is not a fire escape plan out of hell. Now, that's part of that. That can be part of the message, but it's not the message. I also believe that life is hard. And the older I get, the more I believe it. There are moments in life that are, that are not so hard. But for the most part, it's like not hard, 
crammed in the middle of a lot of hard. You know, enjoy the good days. Bad days are coming. And yes, I am a little bit of a pessimist, so. I mean, out of nowhere, financial crisis. We didn't see that coming. Disease. I I didn't see that coming. Sickness. I thought I was invincible. Family struggles. Internal things. Internal and external emotions that manifest themselves in ways we never saw coming. Anger and depression and anxiety. Bad decisions. Life is hard. But the gospel is not about escaping the difficulties in life. I heard, a guy, I heard a guy two weeks ago tell a guy, come to Jesus and he'll free you from your addiction. I was like, you can't promise him that. Because I've met people that I, I, I believe in all my heart they were saved. And they'll tell you I struggle every day. And then I got a guy like J.R. Ritchie, who literally, I was, and I heard him pray, God, I need you, and if you don't take this alcohol away from me, I'll be in heaven. I'll be drunk when I get to heaven. And, and J.R. Ritchie never took another drop of whiskey after that night. The gospel is not an escape plan. The gospel is this. We need a shepherd. Even when we don't know we need a shepherd, we need a shepherd who will guide us and protect us and lead us and provide for us. And God, the creator of the universe, sets some things in order. And it's his creation. So he gets to make the rules. He set things in order. And this, and this is what he said. I have an expectation that my people live a certain way. That this humans that I created in my image live in a certain way. But because of sin and immorality that started in the garden, the, the wrong came into this creation. And we lost the ability to live up to that expectation. But God provided a way. And the great thing about God's way that he provided is he didn't leave it up to us. Because if he did, we would mess it up. Because we don't have the ability to not mess it up. He, he didn't provide a way for us to fix it. He fixed it. His way is better because he provided a savior, Jesus Christ. His son, who did have the ability to live up to the perfect expectation that was needed. Uh, His son, who lived perfectly moral, sinless. And God said to us, his creation, just believe in him. Accept him. Accept that he was sent as a sacrifice for your sins. Believe that he came as a substitute for you, died in the place, took took your guilt on himself. The gospel isn't about escape. It's about looking to Christ and delighting in what Jesus did for you in saving you from your sins. It's It's about... acknowledging that that Christ alone is worthy of delight. And we might not see that exactly before salvation, but we should definitely see it after. Because once we have the ability through the Holy Spirit to delight in God, we realize that we don't no longer need to be beamed out of our trouble. Goodness and mercy start pursuing us, chasing us. We can't get away from them. And we find ourselves in a present peace, even in the midst of our trouble, when our enemies have surrounded us. 
we're also surrounded by the presence of God that brings a peace that passes all understanding. And all our problems don't disappear. All our bad decisions, the consequences are still there, but they pale in comparison to delighting in God. And our inward selves are being transformed into the likeness of Christ in our relationship with others. It's founded in this self-sacrificing love rather than personal benefit. And even our relationship to creation starts being restored to God's original intent. That's what sanctification is. And through Christ's victory, the kingdom of God is broken in among us. And it's transforming us and restoring us. But we're not there yet. But it gives us hope, hope that God, as our shepherd, will lead us through the worst places to green pastures. And all we have to do is follow. Stop running off the road, having him have to drag us back with his staff, tap us back in the way. That he's poured out his goodness on us and it pursues us through life and allows us to find joy in trials. And that's what Paul was talking about when he said, count it all joy when you find yourself tested. We find ourselves satisfied when the rest of the world says, you shouldn't be satisfied. What's wrong with you? And I know people have life verses, but this is my life verse. Therefore, do not give up. Even though our outer self is being destroyed, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction produces for us an incomparable weight of glory. And then he tells us the reason, because we're not focusing on what we see. But on what we can't see, that's faith. For what we see is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And that eternal is when we're so focused on the presence of God. And and allowing Him. You're talking about chasing God? We don't have to chase God. He's chasing us as a shepherd. You know sheep walk in front of the shepherd? Did y'all realize that? They walk in front of the shepherd. But for now, not now, we, we still live as strangers in a strange land, travelers on the way. Not at home here, but rather we're living testimonies to the reality of a future rest that will invade our lives and drive us ultimately to completion on the day of Christ when he returns. The day where, and I love the phrase, where our faith, the unseen, ends in the scene, ends in sight, where finally we made it past the already, we're even past the not yet, it's happened. And we are finally home, dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. And that's not a future hope. That's a today hope. (laughs) 
Let's pray.